日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へレッツゴー !Hey!Everybody! Welcome yet again to the Samurai Archives Podcast.This is Chris, and today I'm talking with Travis, who you'll remember most recently from episodes 147 and 148, and a ton more before that.But today the topic is Sankin Kotai, alternate attendance.During the Edo period, daimyo were required to travel back and forth to the capital of Edo and maintain a residence there. This was a huge part of Edo period politics and culture, but we've only really addressed it as a side note to other things. But if you really want to understand the Edo period, you really have to understand Sankin Kotai. So, over the next two episodes, you'll get an in depth examination. But before we begin, just want to give a shout out to the patrons on Patreon. Your assistance is greatly appreciated. And if you're not on Patreon, but want to see what you can do to help us out, check out patreon.com slash samurai archives. Okay, let's get started. My name is Travis. I'm a PhD student in、uh, history at the UC,、uh, University of California, Santa Barbara.、Um, prior to that, I was a master's student in University of Hawaii、uh, back when some of the earlier episodes of the、uh, podcast. And、um, I'm almost done with my PhD. I'm working on、uh, diplomatic missions sent from the Kingdom of Ryukyu in Okinawa,、uh, sent to the Tokugawa shogunate、um, in Edo, in what's now Tokyo. So, and、uh, yeah. I'll leave it, I guess I'll leave it at that for the moment. All right. So today we're going to be talking about Sankin Kotai. And I think、uh, a good reason for that is because we've never really addressed it directly. I know it's come up kind of like as a side thing a lot over the course of the podcast. It, it kind of comes up, it's mentioned, and we've kind of touched on it here and there, but we've never actually had a dedicated podcast episode to it. And I think this is, you know, like I, I mentioned off air, this is kind of a, I feel like this is a, A thing that is a huge part of the Edo period. And if you really want to understand the Edo period, you really need to understand Sankin Kotai. So that's where we're coming from. Yeah. And I feel like, just like you were saying about the podcast, I feel like it's pretty much the same in academia, to be honest. People mention Sankin Kotai, they know about it, you know, they know it's a major aspect of the Edo period.、Uh, and any, any textbook will mention it sort of in the course of describing the, the basics of the Tokugawa. Um, order, Tokugawa structure of the country.、Um, but there's still, there's only, as far as I know, there's pretty much two books in English that really describe Sankin Kotai in any detail. One of them is,、um, if I remember correctly, I don't have it in front of me, by a guy named Tsukamoto, and it's from like the 50s maybe or the 60s. And the only other one we have is Tour of Duty by Constantine Vaporis,、uh, University of Hawaii Press 2008. And, you know, It's kind of astonishing to me that, you know, in, in all of the things that get published about, Jap- about Japan, about Japanese history,、um, one person has gone out of their way to actually write a book about Sankin Kotai. Yeah. And, you know, to the, to the layperson or even to someone who's just kind of, you know, interested in history in general, it's basically like, oh, well, the daimyo were required to live in the capital,、uh, you know, a certain amount of times, like once every two years, once a year, once every six months, depending on the situation. And it was kind of a hostage thing, and they would just go back and forth. And that's like the extent of it. But it, it, in a way, it seems like the Tokugawa shogunate was kind of built on Sankin Kotai, at least you know, as it developed. Yeah. I mean, I think when we, when we introduce Sankin Kotai to 
students or whatever, when we introduce it in introductory books and textbooks, whatever it may be, I think it, I think it, it is a pretty central major part of the Gawa order. Um, so, you know, just to be a little queer, the term Sankin Kotai usually translated in English as alternate attendance. Sankin meaning sort of to, to come and attend upon your Lord and Kotai meaning to exchange uh, or to exchange periodically, something like that. And uh, yeah, I, I basically, as you were starting to say, Chris, I mean, if you don't mind me kind of getting into it and summarizing. I'll go for it. Um, as you were saying, when the Tokugawa shogunate took over in the 1600s, they instituted this system of where almost all of the daimyo, all of the re- regional lords across Japan, were obligated to travel to Edo once every two years and to spend basically one year um, in Edo. As you were saying, there's exceptions. Some people... Um, it was only six months. Some people more or less never left Edo. They were called the Jofu Daimyo, and they stayed in Edo so they could serve, you know, top-ranking positions in the in the government. But yeah, so they were forced to travel back and forth, and um, uh, and this meant that number one, it meant that they couldn't spend a super uh, sort of permanent time in their domain, uh, plotting or scheming or building up military forces or whatever. Um, it also meant that they had to spend a, an incredible amount of money on the actual journey, traveling back and forth, um, and on maintaining uh, extensive mansions in Edo. And I forget the numbers, I should have them in front of me, but uh, we can talk about it again later. But um, the journey itself cost sometimes 30-40% of a daimyo's entire budget for the year. And then the, 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 the final kind of key part of that, um, as you mentioned, is about hostages, which is that the, the daimyo's wife and his heir, and usually his predecessor, if his predecessor is retired, um, were obliged to stay in Edo. And some, I've never been 100% clear, and I find this frustrating that, you know, basic scholarship doesn't tell you these things, but I think the wife always stayed in Edo, but the heir and the, pre, and the previous retired daimyo would actually travel back to the domain whenever the current lord was in Edo so they couldn't sort of meet and uh, conspire together. So those are sort of the key, the three key elements, I think, is the the journey, the hostage taking, and the, um, well, I guess just the the journey and, and, and the hostage taking and the, the alternation, right, which really forced Daimyo to spend a lot of money and a lot of time in service to the shogun. Um, and kind of broke up his opportunities to just stay in his domain and, and consolidate power and so forth. Yeah, and I think a, a good starting question would be, how did it start? Where did it come from? In other words, was it like this brand new invention that they kind of came up with, or was there some sort of historical precedent? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and it's something that I think we kind of tend to overlook sometimes. Um, so Sankin Kotai, along with a lot of other you know, major elements of the what we consider to be the Tokugawa order, um, including foreign relations and various other things, um, did not actually come about immediately, you know, in 1600 or 1603, when the Tokugawa took, when Tokugawa Ieyasu first united the country and became shogun. It was right up until the 1630s, 1640s, the shogunate was still trying to figure out, you know, if they were going to do this system, what they were going to do. And so, you know, very similarly to how the Tokugawa shogunate dealt with uh, the Dutch and the Chinese and, and other foreigners, 
Uh, similarly, it was not until the 30s or 40s that they, the 1630s or 40s, that they kind of figured that this out. So um, it can be linked to uh, a number of precedents in earlier periods, in the in, under the Kamakura shogunate and also under the Muromachi shogunate. There was some kind of system of obligatory attendance, some kind of system of hostages. And certainly in the uh, in the Sengoku period, as I think has probably come up in the podcast before, I'm not sure which episodes exactly, but certainly in talking about Tokugawa Ieyasu himself, talking about various other major figures of the Sengoku period, we have a very prominent system of hostages, right? Yeah, various lords would sort of be taken, they're Either the, probably not the lord themselves, various lords, their heirs would be taken hostage by their enemies or, or by other lords and for, sort of forced to grow up away from their home domain. Uh, anyway, um, so that there's there's precedent there. And so, you know, very, very early on in the Edo period, around 1600, 1605, 1610, around that time, Tokugawa Ieyasu was drawing upon uh, you know, previous customs, these are typical traditional customs that had already been ex- in existence since the Sengoku period in terms of asking um, lords to come to Edo or come to Sumpu at that point um, and pay respects to him. But it was, it, it was, it followed very customary way of doing things, but it wasn't nearly as systematized as it would become later. Um, and so, especially in 1609, I think it was Somewhere around 1609, Iyasu requested that a lot of the Western daimyo, a lot of whom were still loyal to the Toyotomi, and a lot of whom had never actually faced Tokugawa on the battlefield, um, had to actually now, you know, come to Sumpu or come to Edo and officially uh, bend the knee, as they say in Game of Thrones, and, you know, officially uh, declare their, their submission to his authority. Now, meanwhile, in terms of a, a more systematic system of Sankin Kotai, including the, the the periodic, the regular periodic journeys and the hostages and so forth. To a certain extent, that seems to have been developed by, developed by the Shimazu clan, actually. And so the Shimazu in Kagoshima would require their, um, their vassals who lived in, you know, different parts of Kyushu, different parts of Kagoshima domain, that they were obliged to leave their wives in Kagoshima and also to travel back and forth between their their subdomain and Kagoshima City, and so around 1635, initially voluntary. The system was initially voluntary, but in 1635, the, the Tokugawa made this kind of um, alternate attendance mandatory for all Tozama daimyo, all outside daimyo, and then in 1642, all daimyo were obligated to perform alternate attendance. So I think a good question to ask at this point is, if you know, if it's even really known, is what was the specific original purpose of Sankin Kotai? Was it specifically to drain finances, or was it to just keep an eye on the daimyo, or do we know specifically what the original intent was? Yeah, that's an important question as well. I, to be honest, I haven't come across, um, I haven't come across any documents that sort of, I haven't come across anything that, you know, really explains what. The thought process was at that time, but it seems to me, and I'm just kind of guessing, but it seems to me that perhaps if 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 the financial aspect was not um, you know explicitly in mind, it, I don't know if it was, 
Um, but I think the rest of it, the the maintaining hostages in order to guard against daimyo rebellion and the mandatory alternate attendance so that the daimyo had to actually come and you know be in attendance upon the shogun um, and periodically bend the knee, as it were, periodically bow to the shogun. I think all of that was intentional from the beginning that 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 they they knew what they were doing in terms of in terms of creating a system that obliges the lords to to be seen you know to obliges them to not stay away in their in their domains but to actually have to be under the eye of the shogun and i'm sure that that you know that doesn't come out of nowhere i mean i don't know the precise details of what went on under the kamakura and ashikaga shogunates but in a certain sense, they've been doing this for a long time. Uh, samurai have developed, they have a sense of what, what a standard way to maintain an eye on your vassals and, and you know, oblige them to perform service upon you is. And I think one, one, more, one more thing I'd like to say about that is that ritual was very important to the Tokugawa. And this is a key point in my dissertation, but the... I think that not just the journey and not just the sort of keeping an eye on them per se in terms of like structural or political or whatever you want to say, but the actual ritual of having the daimyo come frequently and bow before the shogun and officially declare, officially re-declare his, um, his loyalty, his fealty is very important. It's very powerful. Um, and you know, we can't know which we can't know how how sincere the daimyo were in really believing that they were loyal to the shogun or whether they were just playing along. You know, it's a whole other topic. But nevertheless, the actual action of doing it is powerful. It, it is meaningful. And I think that that was, you know, a very intentional part of the system as well. So on this topic here of traveling to Edo and then the hostage concept my question would be, it's sort of a two-part question, and you can tackle it however you want, but who typically went to Edo when the, the actual traveling happened, uh, whether it's vassals, family members, generals, or whatever the Edo period equivalent of a general would have been? Right. Uh, so who went? And then what would the typical duties have been for each of these respective individuals while the daimyo was there? And then I guess for the people who stayed while the daimyo went back home. Yeah, yeah. So that's another aspect that people don't typically talk about in the kind of introductory level aspect of it. So to be honest, I'm still a little bit unclear on the extent to which heirs or retired former daimyo were or were not traveling with the current daimyo. I've seen some things that say that they were obliged to alternate so that they really never met each other. But I also know that there were definitely cases when they absolutely did. Um, I, I've seen some things that say that, um, that that they were forced to alternate such that an heir and an active daimyo and his retired uh, predecessor, you know, couldn't all be in Edo at the same time or couldn't all be in the domain at the same time, which would have guarded against them, um, you know, conspiring or something. Um, but we have countless examples, I would imagine, of them actually, uh, that they were in the same place. And one example that comes to mind for me is in 1832, it was the 88th birthday of um, Shimazu Shigehide, uh, former lord of, of Kagoshima, of Satsuma Domain. And um, at that time in 1732, 
1832. His son, Shimazunari Nobu, was also retired. And his son, Shimazunari Oki, was the active lord. And his son, Shimazunari Akira, was the heir. And all four of them were present in Edo at the same time. So, obviously, uh, I think it, uh, uh, they, they, they did, in fact, <laughs> very frequently uh, either travel together or, or be allowed to meet with, up with each other. But anyway, let's get back to the, 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 the bigger question, um, which is that typically, um, I don't know the precise details of exactly which ranks and which positions, but generally a daimyo, especially the largest daimyo, uh, the Shimazu, the Maeda of Kaga domain, people like this, the largest daimyo traveled to Edo with three to 4,000 men. And um, I apologize, I don't have it in front of me, but some some significant portion of, the, of that group, maybe half, I'm not, I don't know the numbers and I apologize, but maybe about half of that group were very low level um, porters and uh, horse minders and uh, luggage bearers and people like this. But uh, some very significant portion, maybe 30 to 50% of that, Three to 4,000 people were samurai, were vassals of the Lord, you know, ranging from, you know, high ranking to low ranking. Um, and that would include some number of his karo, his, uh, his house elders, and, you know, just however many other officials, other um, um, vassals of the Lord. I'm not positive if women traveled with the Sankinkotai group. Uh, that's a, I, I know they traveled separately at some sometimes when they need, did need to travel. They were escorted by Caro. Um, that's a whole separate thing. But um, I don't know. This is a very rambly answer, and I apologize. But in any case, one key thing that I can say is that they would always leave behind at least one Caro, presumably a group of Caro house elders, leave them behind in the in the domain to basically run the domain, um, you know, on behalf of the Lord while he's absent, while he's in Edo. Um, and there were, you know, very frequently messengers sent back and forth between the domain to Edo so that the Karo could confirm, you know, what policies or what actions should be, something like that. And then while they were in Edo, there was um, a figure called the Rusuiyaku. In modern Japan, we have uh, Rusu Denwa, which is, a, a, you know, an answering machine or a voicemail that answers when you're not there. Um, Rusuiyaku is an official who runs the Edo mansion and runs sort of the domain's direct interactions with the shogunate in Edo when the, when the Lord is not there. And once the Lord is in Edo, the Rusuyaku takes over the role of sort of overseeing his reception, making sure the mansion is ready for his, his arrival, communicating with the Lord about, sort of communicating between the Lord and the shogunate about when the shogunate wants the Lord to appear at the castle, all these kinds of things like that. And Vaporous goes into a lot of detail about this, and that's one of the things I love about his book. I apologize that I haven't reread it lately. I don't remember the details off the top of my head right now. But for anyone interested, you can check out Tour of Duty. He goes into a lot of detail about, not overwhelming detail, not like boring detail, but good detail about, um, you know, all the different uh, functions of how the Edo mansion was run and how, how the Lord communicated with the shogunate while he was in Edo and things like that. And, um, and you can imagine, you know, if you're bringing three or 4,000 people with you to Edo and back, some portion of those people would stay in Edo for the whole year with the daimyo, um, and some would turn around and go back almost immediately. 
Um, and some would actually stay in Edo even after the daimyo had left, right, to serve various purposes for him, you know, for the domain. But you can imagine, uh, you know, the size of a mansion that would have to house that many people. I guess maybe we can get into it later. I don't want to get us on a, uh, what's it called, um, you know, a whole different topic. But you're traveling with 3,000, 4,000 people. Every single little port town that you pass through has to house that many people um, as well and the inns and so forth. So um, it's it's a big undertaking. So were there any typical daimyo duties uh, in Edo? For the, any typical like daimyo duties that they had to handle while they were there? Oh, yeah. So the main thing, as far as I understand it, the main duties of a daimyo while they're in Edo are primarily ceremonial. And I don't mean that in a sort of negative way, like, oh, it was just ceremony. But they really, they had um, obligations to, let's see if I can remember it. Um, when they arrive in Edo, they have to go appear before the shogun and, you know, bow before him and uh, officially, you know, redeclare their loyalty and present him with gifts. Um, and actually, there's a lot of really interesting stuff about the gifts that we can talk about as well, which I'd, I'd like to if we come back around to it. But um, um, and to one extent or another, uh, I'm not well, to one extent or another, I think the shogun sort of he he reciprocates by officially reaffirming them in their um, um, in their fiefs and so forth, reaffirms, yeah, you know, their authority over their domain. And then in addition to that, Daimyo, Daimyo typically went up to the castle on the 1st, 15th, and 28th of each month. And they also went up to the castle on the, the uh, major, major festival days of the year. So New Year's, Nanakusa no Sekku, which is the first month, seventh day. The third day of the third month, which is Dolls Festival or Girls Festival. The fifth day of the fifth month, which is Boys Festival. The seventh day of the seventh month which is Tanabata, um, and the ninth day of the ninth month, which is um, Chrysanthemum Festival. And then in addition to that, on the 16th day of the sixth month, Daimyo were called up to the castle in celebration of the anniversary of Ieyasu's victory in Mikatagahara. Sorry, and the anniversary of the Battle of Mikatagahara is, an, is a holiday called Kasho. And then on the first day of the eighth month every year um, for Hasaku, the daimyo would also go up to the castle in celebration of um, the anniversary of Ieyasu's victorious entry into Edo in 1590. So there's all these different holidays. And then in addition to that, they would also be called up to the, to the, to the castle to be present when foreign uh, envoys were being seen or when the shogun wanted to, uh, wanted to have some, some kind of showing of whether it's no or uh, horse racing or different things, um, military, what's it called, martial, martial arts demonstrations, whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, as long as they were in, in the city, Daimyo would spend a lot of time in their mansions or hanging out with, you know, at each other's mansions, um, but they would also be called up to the castle very frequently. Um, and when they were called up to the castle, it was like a full day of sitting around in a designated waiting room, waiting for your turn to go into the proper audience hall, rehearsing for that audience, then finally actually having the audience, and then, you know, finally being allowed to go home. So it's a, it's a busy, 
um, thing in that respect. But in terms of duties uh, pertaining to political or sort of economic or, or kind of administrative stuff, my impression off the top of my head is that for the most part, um, unless you were a daimyo who had, you know, a, a, a really notable position within the shogunate, uh, a real kind of administrative role, um, unless you were one of the roju or something like that, you, I don't think that you had any kind of obligations. I don't think the Shimazu lord, for example, was obligated to have uh, be involved in administration at all. So you did mention gifts, and I want to get to the gifting part. But before we do that, actually, I wanted to kind of step back for a second. So you mentioned the uh, daimyo mansions. Mm. Do Did all daimyo have their own personal mansions, or did it kind of depend on rank where some smaller daimyo would be housed somewhere by the shogunate, whereas others had their own mansions, or did everyone have to build their own mansion, or at least maintain their own mansion? Oh, that's a good question. I do know that there was definitely regulations on what how big your mansion could be and how how big your gate could be and what what the, what style of gate you could have uh depending on your rank and this is all detailed in among other places it's detailed in a, a volume called the Tokugawa Seisei Roku which is put together in the 1880s I want to say as a sort of compilation of Tokugawa um ritual practices but um so that was definitely you know a thing if you're only the highest ranking daimyo are allowed to have such and such a style of gate and things like this. Um, I would imagine, I would imagine that none of the daimyo were being housed by the shogunate because that's the shogunate's money. And, you know, you're an individual daimyo who's, uh, basically, you know, obliged to run your own domain and run your own affairs and shogunate's not going to help you with that. As for whether everybody maintained their own mansion, I don't know. I would imagine. I would imagine that they did. Um, the smallest daimyo would probably have had to have particularly small mansions, but um, I can't imagine. Unless I mean, there, there, there were there were certainly cases of people who were, you know, they kind of functioned as an independent daimyo, but they were also kind of just a branch of a different domain or something like this, and maybe those guys kind of grouped up and uh, lived in someone else's mansion, something like that. But, um, you know, lived in just some portion of someone else's mansion or something like that. But as far as I know, and this is another, this gets back to sort of the biases of academia or something. Most of what we know about is about, most of what's discussed in academia is about the largest, the most powerful, most prominent daimyo. Uh, Shimazu, Tosa, Maeda of Kaga, and so, you know, maybe maybe that has something to do with um, them having more records available. I'm not positive. But, uh, yeah, I'm not 100% positive. The smallest daimyo who are only, you know, 10,000 koku domains, um, you know, what kind of mansion would they have? But I would assume that they would have to. I'm assuming that they would have to have their own independent mansion. And then, of course, as long as we're on the subject, just to mention it, um, many daimyo, or at least the largest, the most powerful daimyo, had multiple mansions. So the Shimazu at least had, if I remember correctly, I believe the Shimazu had three mansions in Edo, a Kamiyashiki, a Nakayashiki, and a Shimoyashiki, as well as a mansion in Fushimi, just outside of Kyoto, and another mansion in Osaka, which 
was a kurayashiki, which was mainly a sort of a warehouse for goods from Satsuma and Ryukyu to be brought to Osaka and then sold in Osaka to bring for the sake of, you know, sort of revenue back to the domain. Well, and then also, and I, you know, I don't mean to be getting off topic again, we'll come back to travel, I guess, maybe, maybe later. But in addition to these mansions, many daimyo also maintained chaya at different places within their domain or maybe neighboring domains. So which was sort of a private little residence that they could stop at when they were on the road. And then a lot of them also had, um, I'm blanking on the word in Japanese, but they also had sort of designated merchants who would maintain inns for them in other towns. So the Shimazu, for example, when they came to Tomono Ura in Hiroshima, in Hiroshima domain, which is, you know, very far from Kagoshima, and it's somebody else's domain. But when they came to, to Tomono Ura, there was, a, there was a certain family of innkeepers who maintained an inn for the Shimazu lord whenever he did pass through. All right. And then, uh, so you mentioned gift giving and gifts. And so I guess this is probably as good a time as any to address that. So was the gift giving, was this just ceremonial or were there, was there an additional purpose? Like, uh, for example, I don't know, additional financial strain on the daimyo. Uh, so I, I guess, what would you say the purpose of the gift giving was? Were there typical gifts? Uh, so what was that all about? Yeah. So I don't know what other people might say. I personally, I'm not really big on the on the, the sort of reducing things to a political or economic motive, per se, um, which is to say that, yes, the gifts were very expensive, and, and, and it's certainly a part of the whole phenomenon that the domains, uh, you know, that, that it was a notable, was a significant financial obligation upon the domains, uh, a, a, a strain to a certain extent, to have to constantly provide, you know, produce these gifts and, and and provide them to the shogunate, but um, what I but I, I also think that perhaps more than in terms of you know you had asked earlier like what was the what did the shogunate have in mind what was their intention? They may have had that in mind as an as a direct intentional like this will be a financial strain, but I also think that it was just very very standard. It was very customary both in Japanese culture going all the way back to the Heian period, if not earlier, as well as in Chinese culture going back millennia. It was very standard for either sort of regional lords or or for foreign envoys to come and present gifts of primarily uh, what they call local goods, products, products specifically of your domain, um, and present those to the lord. And then the lord, or in the case of tributary missions to the emperor in China, um, the lord would reciprocate with uh, showing his his benevolence and his magnanimity by bestowing upon his guest, upon his vassal, a much larger amount of goods um, in return. And so in that respect, I, I guess, I'm not sure if anyone's really calculated it out. I'm sure somebody... I'm sure somebody in Japanese scholarship has calculated it out, but I think it might have been the case that the daimyo might have even benefited in terms of strict, uh, you know, plus or minus revenues. Um, you know, they're giving X amount in gifts to the shogun and they're receiving in return a, uh, presumably a larger amount. So so that's, uh, anyway, so that's that. In terms of what gifts they give, 
it, it varied based on occasion. It, there was a lot of kind of variation. But generally speaking, Daimyo would, would present the shogun with textiles, uh, foodstuffs, um, various other sort of local products that are somehow distinctive of their region. I know the, the, the E family of Hikone very frequently gave fish. Um, a lot of daimyo very frequently gave fish or vegetables or um, sweets, as well as textiles and uh, maybe ceramics, maybe lacquerwares, um, various other products like that. And then in addition to that, on certain occasions, and I don't recall if this is limited to only certain daimyo of certain ranks, but mm, but in any case, it, it was also a very, very common, very prominent and important thing that daimyo would also present the shogun with a horse um, and with a sword. And both of these are interesting, I think, to me. So the, the horse, first of all, presenting somebody with a horse directly relates to provide, you know, the, 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 the lord providing the shogun, or that is to say the vassal providing his lord with greater military power, right? Even if it's just one horse and it's therefore kind of symbolic. But, you know, horses are an important element of, of gathering an army or, you know, whatever. And so providing, you know, your best horses from your region um, is one piece of that. And what's interesting is that on certain occasions, this was a very standard practice, was that on certain occasions they would provide a horse, and then on certain occasions they would gift the shogun with uh, badai or badai gin, which literally means silver in place of a horse. Um, and so this was a very standard practice, not just that they were giving the shogun some amount of silver, but they were explicitly sort of, on some such occasion, instead of presenting a horse, we present an amount of silver as proxy or in, in place of the horse. Um, so that's something. And then as for the sword, of course, um, I think, you know, the idea, the idea of presenting a sword to your lord and the idea of him presenting swords back to you is, well, Morgan Patelka talks about it extensively in his book, Spectacular Accumulation. And this goes back to the Sengoku period. It goes back even earlier than that. Daimyo, Daimyo and the Shogunate definitely did exchange between them famous swords, heirloom swords, and there's I, there's actually a whole book. I keep plugging books just because I'm interested in them, and if, I don't know if any of our listeners are interested, but there's a, a very new book that actually our own uh, Joseph Ryan told me about and suggested to us, uh, suggested to me. There's a very new book called uh, Token to Kakutsuke by Fukai Masaumi, um, which is all about individual swords that are either by a very famous... Uh, swordsmith, or that used to be owned by a particularly famous warrior, and how those were um, exchanged. And so there's, that's a whole story unto itself. You know, Edo period lords giving the shogun a Kamakura period sword, or things like this. So that's a whole thing unto itself, and I think it's really interesting, and I'm sure that many of our listeners are also really interested in individual famous swords that were used at individual famous battles, and how those were exchanged back and forth, and so on and so forth. Um, but then, in addition, the daimyo actually very frequently presented the shogun with um, a fake sword, just a symbolic ritual sword, which was a piece of wood, lacquered black, kind of made to look like a sword, just 
perfectly symbolic. And actually, I should mention also that pretty much all of the gifts, pretty much all of the gifts are not actually sort of handed over in the middle of a ceremonial meeting with the shogun. They're, they're handed over as in the form of um, a piece of paper that says what the gifts are. And then the actual gifts are sort of moved around the castle by shogunate officials, you know, and are never actually... Sometimes they're brought into the audience hall and put on display for the duration of the ceremony, but they're never actually like directly handed over, right? Um, and you can certainly imagine that if a daimyo were presenting the shogun with a really famous sword, you know, he wouldn't be allowed to bring a sword into the audience hall with the shogun, right? You, you don't want to... People aren't allowed to bring their swords into the castle to begin with, I think, generally speaking. And so... You know, we don't want them attacking the shogun. We don't want them attacking each other. So it, it's all, it's gift giving is generally done by pieces of paper that list what the gifts are. And in the case of a sword, you'll have this lacquered piece of wood um, that is given uh, pretending to be a sword. And then the shogun would receive all of these lacquered sticks of wood that are just symbolic, you know, and like, what the hell is he supposed to do with them, right? <laughs> so the shogun would take all of these sticks of wood and he would give them, I think just give them to certain specific merchants in the city who would then sell them back to the daimyo. That's interesting. So that they could then turn around on their next trip and give it back to the shogun? Exactly. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Sounds like symbolism is a big part of it, of, of the whole process. Yeah. Oh, and, I saw, and of course, also, you know, the shogun by himself or with or with his family or with his closest retainers couldn't possibly eat all of the food that was presented to them either right so all of this fish and sweets and everything um was always you know given to the castle kitchens and then sort of redistributed in some fashion and sometimes it was immediately sort of cooked or prepared or plated and immediately brought back out for a banquet you know with the daimyo who had just presented it um but i just to touch upon also so the show can be presented with all these local goods so you know, part of this is the daimyo sort of being, uh, uh, what's the word, you know, boasting of how unique or how good, how high quality their local goods are, right? The Lord of such and such brings his best mikan and the Lord of such and such brings his best indigo dyed textiles and, you know, whatever it may be. So that's on that side. And then the shogunate would be able to kind of, by, by by having access to all of these foods that might not normally be accessible, right, from all over the archipelago, it gives the shogun a certain ability to sort of boast his power, his access, right, his control over all of these things. So I think that's an interesting sort of aspect of the ritual. Um, and then in return, the shogun would bestow upon the daimyo uh, sometimes a sword, sometimes a horse, but only only two, the highest ranking daimyo um, received those things, I think. But generally he would he would bestow upon the daimyo seasonal clothing, summer clothing and winter clothing, and also silver. And there and this this goes back to Sengoku, it goes back even earlier than Sengoku. There's a certain I don't know if you want to call it symbolic, I don't know, but there's a certain kind of thing of, you know, the Lord Clo the word clothing his vassals, right? If you are loyal to me, then I will take care of you kind of thing. And so um, the shogun provides his vassals, that is to say the daimyo, with, uh, with clothing. 
um, as, as a part of this as well. So uh, I think this is my last question specifically regarding Sankin Kotai and Edo. And then, okay. I, and then I have some more like big picture questions after this. So hostage taking comes up a lot in this. And, mm. you know, from other podcasts and also from anyone interested in the Sengoku period, we all know that hostage taking has always been big. And hostages were very often, you know, put to the sword when someone got out of line. So when it comes to the Edo period and Sankin Kotai, are there any historical episodes or notable episodes, I guess, of hostages being executed? And what would what kind of circumstances would actually result in that? Because I know there are a variety of punishments in the Edo period, you know, whether be it seppuku or right. what have you. Where, why would, when would a decision be to kill the hostages rather than have the Lord commit seppuku? I don't know. It's sort of a vague general question, but I don't know if you have anything to kind of say to that. Yeah, no, I, I hate to be disappointing, but I, I'm afraid I actually really, I don't know of any examples, um, which doesn't mean it didn't happen, but I I don't know of any examples of hostages actually being executed, although that, that, was, that, was the, that was the threat, that was the idea, right? The idea being that, you know, if you rose up, if you did something, you know, then, you know, your wife or your heirs could be killed. So, yeah, I, I'm afraid I don't, I don't know that much about sort of the history of punishments or, or anything like this, specific examples. But just to kind of think about it for a moment, I would say, you know, of course, if the shogun, if the shogun orders that somebody should commit seppuku, then I would imagine that for the most part that was observed, that was, you know, followed through on. But at the same time, we also have to think about, you know, the heirs and the wives and so forth, they were living at these mansions, right? And the mansions, if if somebody was ordered to be executed and they really refused, I mean, the shogunate would have to dispatch troops to attack a mansion. I don't know if that, it could have happened. I, I don't, in the entire, you know, 250 years of the Edo period, you have plenty of time that any number of things could have happened, but I'm not aware of any specific incidences. And then you know, the only instances that come to mind for me, and maybe I'm blanking or maybe you know other ones, but the only instances that come to mind for me of domains really kind of like full on rising up against the shogunate are, you know, towards the very end, right, in the Bakamatsu period. And by that point, things have kind of started to fall apart that, uh, for example, I mean, the, the, the final lord of Satsuma, Shimazu Tadayoshi, uh, never went to Edo. He just kept providing more and more excuses to try to delay or get out of his Sangin Kotai um, obligations. And so he just he just never went to Edo. And yet the shogunate didn't order him executed. And they certainly didn't, you know, launch an expeditionary force to try to take over Kagoshima to get at him. And they, and they also didn't... Uh, maybe that's a good example to show that even in a case like that, even by the time when Satsuma and Choshu were to one extent or another um, in open rebellion against the shogunate, and maybe they weren't quite yet, just yet, but even at that time with such tensions, uh, you know, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not aware of any sort of order that the shogunate ordered Tadayoshi's heir to be executed or his wife or anybody. I, I couldn't really come up with anything either. I, I mean, there is the example of the 47 Ronin and the, the threat of rebellion, which never actually, which they never actually acted on. You know, even in, the case, in, in that case, that's one of the 
I mean, I'm sure there were cases of daimyo being forced to commit seppuku, but it kind of seems like, yeah, they just, okay, and then they just did it. It didn't, doesn't seem like there was much in the way of rebellion, at least through the majority of the period. Not that I'm aware of, but then again, you know, it's uh, kind of, maybe, maybe it's just I'm just not reading the, you know, it kind of falls outside of uh, whatever my specialty or, you know, falls outside of what I happen to have been reading. I mean, there are numerous examples of daimyo sort of, pushing back against shogunal authority in, in sort of more, um, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't even say pushing back against shogunal authority, but there are very, there are countless examples of daimyo sort of trying to negotiate with the shogunate that they should be allowed a reprieve from Sankin Kotai just this one time, or that they should be allowed to bring more troops with them, or that they should be allowed to have a fancier entourage. There were all kinds of regulations about which daimyo of which ranks were allowed to display which kinds of things in their um, in their processions. Because, you know, this was not just a journey to Edo, like let's just go to Edo and not really like be seen. They, they performed processions and um, were very much, you know, seen by the people all along the roads, which I guess just to clarify, you know, these three or 4,000 men who are traveling with a daimyo, most of the journey, they would, they would, uh, you know, just just walk on foot or on horseback or sometimes in palanquins, very kind of typical basic kind of thing. But when they entered a town, when they entered a city or a town or at certain other special moments, um, certainly when they were traveling up to Edo Castle to um, um, to meet with the shogun, they would put on fancier clothes. They would pull out banners and um, sort of and elaborately decorated weapons and all kinds of things to put on a real proper procession. And within that procession, there were all kinds of regulations about only certain families were allowed to uh, paint their weapons and certain other things red as, uh, yeah, only certain families were allowed to display tiger skins either on their saddle covers or sort of covering over their luggage boxes. Only certain families were allowed to use gilding to make the family seal the common um, on their luggage boxes sort of, you know, flashy and stand out, all those kinds of things. And, and the Lord himself, as he, you know, processed through the streets in his palanquin, uh, depending on his rank, the Lord was allowed to be preceded by one or two spears and to be immediately followed by one or two spears. And, and there's all kinds of examples of Daimyo sort of saying, you know, I, uh, requesting permission to have to to have tiger skins or requesting permission to have one more spear and those kinds of things. So maybe that, you know, that's a, a funny example because it's just sort of ceremonial stuff, but there are countless examples throughout the Edo period um, relating to Sanghin Gotai and not relating to Sanghin Gotai in which, you know, the daimyo asks for more privileges or he asks for a reprieve to some kind of duty or all kinds of things. And that, you know, happened a lot, even without any kind of without it coming to any kind of armed rebellion or, or anything. All right, that's it for part one of our talk on Sankin Kotai, and we'll be back in about a month with part two. Check out SamuraiPodcast.com or iTunes for all back episodes, and if you're up for it, how about taking 35 seconds out of your day to rate the podcast on iTunes? You don't even have to write a review if you don't want to. Also, remember to check out Patreon.com slash SamuraiArchives to see what we have to offer and to see what you can do to help us out if you're interested. But that's all for now, so thanks. <laughs>